Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm here, as always, with Jen and with Zach. And today we're starting with what seems like a James Bond movie come to life, the poisoning of a former Russian spy and his daughter who lived in the United Kingdom. Both were found unconscious late last week in the town of Salisbury. So who's behind the attack? According to Prime Minister Theresa May, it's Russian president slash shirtless Bond villain Vladimir Putin. Mr. Speaker, this attempted murder using a weapons-grade nerve agent in a British town was not just a crime against the Skripals. It was an indiscriminate and reckless act against the United Kingdom, putting the lives of innocent civilians at risk. And we will not tolerate such a brazen attempt to murder innocent civilians on our soil. So Moscow says it isn't responsible because, of course, that's what they say. But no one believes them. That's because the nerve agent was made by the Soviet Union. As far as we know, the only place it is held in the world is within Russia. It also isn't the first time Putin has tried to kill his enemies in England using gloriously Baroque and somewhat macabre and grim methods. But let's start with the poisoning itself. You know, Zach, who is Sergei Skripal and why would Putin want him and, it seems, possibly his daughter dead? So Skripal was a former Russian spy who turned double agent and started working for the UK. And... The motivation appears to be to tell Russian enemies or anyone who's thinking about crossing the Kremlin domestically, you better think twice. We can get you anywhere. In the UK, one of the largest and most powerful countries in the world, you aren't safe. Yeah, Jim, this is kind of a historic attack for a bunch of reasons, which we'll talk to a little bit later. But, you know, we were both nodding at this. It's not the first time Russia's done this, not in the UK and not with creative methods that go beyond just a headshot or fiddling with a car engine. But what are those other times? I mean, how else has it killed people? Sort of how Baroque has it gotten? Yeah. So probably the most famous one was in 2006 uh, with Alexander Litvinenko. So he was poisoned. Uh, he was another spy, former KGB officer living in Britain, was poisoned with polonium-210. It's a super rare, highly toxic radioactive metal. So this isn't something you can just go to Walgreens and pick up, right? It's this super like elaborate, like, we will poison you with radioactive substances. There was also a former Russian spy in the UK who people thought he died from a heart attack until they did the autopsy and found that he was killed by a super rare deadly plant toxin. So it's these kind of like elaborate, right? Like, you could just go up and pay an assassin, like go up on the street and stab this guy, right? Or put a silencer on a pistol and go kill him in his house. You would probably get the job done just as well, but you wouldn't get the spectacle, right? And that's kind of the point here. In particular, in, in the case with Skripal, right, you had this toxic nerve agent that not only, you know, affected him and his daughter, but potentially at least 21 other people, including first responders, police officers, were hospitalized. And then, you know, the UK government was like, oh, also up to 500 people may have been contaminated, by the way. So if you wanted to kind of do this subtly, you could. It's the exact opposite of subtlety. And that's the entire point. My favorite part about the poison that was used here, not that poison is fun, but that it really is uh, illustrative of what's going on, is the name of the poison. It's called Novichok. It's an extremely rare type of chemical that is only manufactured in the Soviet Union, or former Soviet Union, I should say. And really, only Russia has control over it now. So one, it's totally implausible that anyone but the Russians could have used this. And two, you'd think if they wanted to do it subtly, they would have picked a poison with a less Russian-sounding name. Yeah, and 
parts of what was happening, just if you're looking at photos and, and videos from Salisbury, you have literal park benches now covered with biohazard tents. You've got people in kind of gas masks and these sort of Hollywood-style space costumes walking around because so much of the city and the town is at least theoretically poisoned. And the British being wonderful and British, there were signs posted in some of the grocery stores that said, nerve agent-free produce. So kudos to them for trying to find something funny in this very scary thing. But is it organic? Right. But there, there was some news happening just as we were walking in that I wanted to mention briefly before we go on, which is the U.S. under Trump has walked a line between trying to sort of kind of condemn Russia for bad things like, you know, poisoning an ally and then not. But this morning, the U.K., France, Germany put out a joint statement that was unusually hard-hitting for anything that Trump signed on to. I want to read just a sentence from it because it gives you a sense of just how seriously this is now being taken, even though the response, which we'll get to, is not as serious as it might be. But this is from the joint statement. We share the United Kingdom's assessment that there is no plausible alternative explanation. And note that Russia's failure to address the legitimate request by the government of the United Kingdom further underlines Russia's responsibility. So there you have the United States saying, yep, Russia did this. And that's something Trump has been hesitant to do. It's something that is a big step. I mean, these are permanent members of the UN Security Council saying, basically, Russia committed an act of war, that they used a chemical weapon inside of a NATO ally, a U.S. ally, a global superpower. Like you said, basically, Russia, the Russian government is the only plausible one who would have access to this kind of poison that was created by the Russians and has, again, a Russian name. So the Brits were like, uh, hey, you know, if you guys didn't do this, like, let us know who controls this stuff, right? Like, if it was a rogue actor who got a hold of this, if it was, like, some bad guy, if it was some rogue non-state group, let's talk. Let's find out who's in control of this stuff, where it goes. And Russia's refusing to do that because, of course, they're refusing to do that because they did it, right? There's no other plausible explanation if there were they should offer that. So that's what they're referring to there. I don't want to belabor the point about Russian responsibility since like everyone who isn't a paid Kremlin shill believes that the Russians did it at this point. So the, the bigger questions are why and what can possibly be done to prevent them from doing this again. And my view is the why is this deterrent thing that I mentioned at the beginning. Putin specifically wants to show that he can get anybody anywhere. And, and there's another side of it, too which is that this is how he exercises influence internationally. The Russians uh, don't have a lot of friends in the rest of the world. There aren't a lot of countries that really find the Russian political model attractive or see Vladimir Putin as a long-term stable ally. So his attempt to wield influence comes through fear. The Russia analyst Mark Galliotti calls this dark power. And this kind of dark power through assassinations, intimidation, and invasions, or shadow invasions, really this is... This is Russia's calling card, and this is Putin doubling down on what he's good at. So, I mean, I want to push on that just a little bit because I think there are two aspects to the why. I mean, one is Putin has particular hatred for double agents, for people who were once spies like he was and then turned on their own country. Recently, as he's preparing for what will be amazingly fake elections, Putin was asked about who he could forgive, what he could forgive. He said he could forgive almost anything except for betrayal by which he meant double agents. And that was sort of building on something chilling that he had said in 2010. He described Russian spies as, quote, people who lay their whole lives on the altar of the fatherland, and then said those who were double agents, like Skripal, as pigs, whose fate would be so miserable they would regret a thousand times their treachery. So his feelings about double agents like Skripal are not subtle. Part of it also is that he's continually testing the West. 
he continually pushes in prods and see how far can I go before they do something serious. So can I invade Georgia, a neighbor of his, and annex part of their country? Will they do anything? No, not really. Can I invade Ukraine and annex parts of it, and will they do anything? They the West? And no, not really. Now, can I poison somebody in the middle of England, and will they do something? So far, no. I mean, right now, they're talking about expelling 23 diplomats, how they're not going to send members of the British royal family to the opening ceremony of the World Cup in Russia. I mean, these are not things that are going to make Vladimir Putin shake in fear or like really wonder, boy, should I have taken that gamble? And it kind of gets to this point of, if you're the West, how far are you willing to go? Because you know Putin's willing to go really far. And if you're not, he always has the advantage. And also, just the fact we keep calling them diplomats, right? They're kicking out these 23 diplomats. So Theresa May actually said that they were identified as undeclared intelligence officers, right? So this isn't like the ambassador we're talking about. These are like the people who work as cultural attaches or like economic advisors who are just basically KGB, right? They operate out of the embassy. So they're basically saying, oh, we're going to kick out uh, like 20 of your spies out of our country. That, that's not a really big deal. It's like a slap on the wrist. What's particularly galling is that there's a lot that the UK could do that's short of right. war. Uh, so the Russian regime, the whole government, depends on Putin's close relationship with oligarchs, the wealthy and powerful who benefit from favor of his government. And a lot of these oligarchs love investing in UK property. Belgrave Square, which is a really picturesque place in central London, is colloquially known as Red Square because all of the different Russian investors that have gone in there. Igor Shuvalov, who's Russia's deputy prime minister, has a flat overlooking the UK Ministry of Defense. Like, it's not subtle. Right. And if Theresa May wanted to, she could have frozen the assets of some of these people. She could have seized their property. She could have kicked them out of the country or removed their UK visas. She didn't. She's not doing the thing that actually would put Putin in trouble with a really important domestic audience. And that gets back to the question of why. I mean, if there are tools out there that, as you say, exist, people know what they are, they could be used, why not? A huge part of it is what Zach just said, is the fact that there is all of this money from these Russian oligarchs. It's a really big deal in in the economy. This isn't the small potatoes here. Like, we're talking billions of dollars, billions from even one oligarch. So when you get a whole bunch of them investing, that's a big deal. You also just have kind of broader geopolitical concerns, right? So you, again, don't want to necessarily go hard against Russia when there are all these kind of other political concerns, economic ties, things like that, that you just have to take into account, even though they did this kind of low level thing. And then you also have the fact that if you escalate, right? So NATO has been kind of meeting and had this crisis meeting to talk about this. Um, UK is a NATO ally. And they put out this kind of statement, you know, saying that this was like a, an act of force and things like that. But like, they can't go too far, right? Because you don't want to actually trigger, like, a potential war or potential actual conflict. And it's something that you kind of see more broadly. We saw this during the Cold War, right? So you have powers who are big and powerful and have these kind of big, broad geopolitical interests who have nuclear weapons. And so they kind of do these low-level pushing each other things to see how far we can go. And you know you can kind of get away with certain things because it's not like we're going to get into a nuclear war over this, right? So And, and there's also just the reality— just get away with it of what Russia is. I mean, Russia being a member of the UN Security Council means it could veto anything the UN Security Council does, which means a tool you might use of sanctions against Russia, you can't because Russia will block it. And you had this interesting moment yesterday where Nikki Haley, who has really taken a much harder line on Russia publicly than Trump has, went after them really hard at the UN Security Council. And to give you a sense of how 
small a fuck Russia gave in response. The Russian ambassador immediately mocked her and the British ambassador. He said the British government was acting like Inspector Lestrade, who's the detective that Sherlock Holmes always outdoes. And then about Haley, he said, she's clearly an experienced chemist. So this is like the public response of, of a diplomat. This is the diplomatic response of a diplomat basically says, hey, Nikki Haley and hey, British ambassador, both of you can go to hell. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like Russia has developed a foreign policy around geopolitical trolling. Uh, and by almost, I mean they have, right? This is this is the thing that they do generally. But it's important that we not underplay the magnitude of this kind of attack, right? Like, Jen, you're right that in the geopolitical scale of things, it's not like invading Britain. Right. But if an Islamist group had gotten their hands on a chemical weapon and deployed it in the middle of a British town— this would be like like a five-alarm fire geopolitically for the Trump administration, for the media. Everybody would be freaking out about this. Right. This was, for all intents and purposes, a terrorist attack. This one was done with state sponsorship by a country that has access to the kinds of weapons that al-Qaeda could only dream of. And the UK reactions to expelled diplomats, like it just it feels so soft relative to the magnitude of the crime here. Right. I mean, to be fair, it is still possible. Theresa May has talked about possibly going further. They have outlined saying, you know, we could do these sanctions. We could uh, freeze assets. So it is possible that in the coming days they could take stronger steps. We And we just haven't seen it yet. But I mean, yeah, just starting with, OK, we're going to like kick out 23 spies. It, it's not a big deal. But again, we've seen this before. Right. Like we said, this is not the first time that Russia has done this on British soil. And the last time with the most famous one in 2006 with Litvinenko, it took years for the British government to do this, even to an inquiry to finally put out a report that said, yeah, Russia probably did that. They weren't even really willing to call Russia out that time. So at least they're, I don't know, rallying NATO, they're rallying at the UN. Like they're making kind of a big deal out of this. Yeah, the, uh, the New York Times, which we love because so much of what they do is so great, also has that extraordinarily diplomatic way of writing. And this was a paragraph I just loved when they were describing this uh, this debate at the Security Council, the one where the Russian ambassador mocked Haley as a, as a chemist. So this was the line they used. The Security Council session was unusual. Permanent members of the council do not normally accuse one another of what under certain circumstances could be construed as acts of war. No, they don't. You didn't normally have the U.S. at the Security Council say Russia basically committed an act of war. And it's extraordinary, right? So... With Putin, there's always that line that we and others have to tread between, on the one hand, some stuff he does is legitimately funny. You know, he's photographed shirtless riding his horse. He's piloting a submarine. He's doing all these manly things. And then other stuff he does is horrible. I mean, beyond the repression, beyond the brutality, when he's assassinating people like in 2006 or poisoning people like now, Zach, I agree that if this were an Islamist group, we would go, holy hell, al-Qaeda has crossed the line or ISIS has crossed the line. But if this were another country short of Russia— if this were, let's say, Venezuela, that Trump has already inexplicably talked about invading, this would be seen as an act of war. I mean, we often say now the what if, like, what if Trump did this, and it, but it actually was done by Obama. But what if this happened to DuPont Circle? What if Washington had to evacuate neighborhoods of near our office because people were poisoned? I mean, just imagine the response of any U.S. president, especially this one. It wouldn't be expelled diplomats. It might actually be war. But it's Russia, so they slide. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to go to the brink of nuclear war, right? Nobody wants that. Nobody wins under those circumstances. That's to say the least. But 
Russia, in terms of its conventional military and economic and diplomatic power, is just not that significant a geopolitical competitor. Russia's GDP is less than half of the UK's. It is under 10 percent, closer to 7 percent of the U.S. GDP. Its military is aging. Its economy is heavily dependent on oil, and so it doesn't show much signs of turning around. Right? Like This is not like China, a country that has dynamic economic growth and rapid technological advancement. It's a country that can and should be contained on the international sphere. It's just that nobody wants to risk going as far as Putin does. And so there should be more creative ways to think about a response that doesn't like expel diplomats or activate the NATO provision that declares this an act of war and launches like World War III. I've been fascinated to see the Russian media, like state media, essentially. So RT, formerly Russia Today, especially in the UK, they have like a cable news channel that's just like other British media. Like it looks like the BBC. It looks like other kind of mainstream news channels. And they've been running like wall-to-wall content on this. Of course, if you're RT in the UK, it is the big story. But one, they're not trying to kind of like paper over it and just talk about like, oh, look at this other story we could talk about. We see that a lot on Fox News, right? Like they'll just completely ignore an entire story about the Russia investigation and just talk about Hillary for two days. They're not doing that with RT. They're actually discussing it. They say they don't believe, of course, you know, we didn't do this. That's silly. But they're not saying that they're like impartial. They're like, It's just fake news because uh, what are facts? You know, we don't know. You can't prove it. We can't prove that you're doing a conspiracy against Russia. So I guess we'll never know the truth. Like they're not presenting very serious arguments. It's just trolling. It's just openly pretending that that wink, wink, everything's fine. We totally did this. For many of us, there are subjects we would have really loved to have explored in school, but we didn't have time because we were doing better things like drinking, trying to study for things that were actual majors, trying to keep our GPAs up. But now you can with the Great Courses Plus. And it's fun. It's a great way to discover new interests, pick up new hobbies, learn more about those things you always meant to and didn't quite get to. You learn from leading professors and experts, and you have unlimited access to thousands of lectures in pretty much any category. History, science, math, literature, art, music, political science. You can watch or listen whenever you want, wherever you want. There's no homework, no pressure of exams, no angry teachers. And it's really lifelong learning at its best. So here's one example. You could take a course on the fundamentals of photography, which is how you learn how to take better photos from a National Geographic photographer, somebody who really knows what it is they do and how best to do it. It's tips and tricks, like how to use lighting, how to frame your photos. And it's for any kind of camera, whether it's a real professional expensive one or your iPhone camera. It works for everything. I know you get a lot out of The Great Courses Plus, and right now my listeners can get unlimited access to all of their lectures with a free trial. And you get it by going to my special URL. To start exploring today and to do it all for free, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly. Again, it's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly. Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly. So for Elsewhere this week, we're going to bring you a very familiar voice. Let them call you racist. Let them call you xenophobes. Let them call you nativist. Wear it as a badge of honor. So the familiar voice, of course, being the English-speaking one, not the smooth French translator. And that's former White House strategist Steve Bannon. But he wasn't talking to a group of Republicans, and he wasn't even in the U.S. He was actually in France trying to help a far-right party with a racist and anti-Semitic past seem 
less racist and less anti-Semitic. And it didn't really go all that well, in part because of their branding, which, again, didn't really go all that well. Right. So this is the Front National or the artist formerly known as the Front National, because they just changed their name to the Rassemblement National. I tried my best French there. It's the RN for short. And the RN is a reaction to the fact that the party has had this poisonous reputation and they got trounced in the recent presidential election by Emmanuel Macron. And so the leader, Marine Le Pen, who has long tried to rebrand the Front National as a less aggressively racist and anti-Semitic party, decided, hey, let's pick this new name. Then there's this like one-two punch of one, Steve Bannon comes and gives a speech that's like, yeah, just own being racist. And she's like, uh, she's standing next to him at this point. This is not what I want. And two, the RN actually shares a name with an old party, abbreviated as the RNP, which was a Nazi collaborationist party from 1941. Their logo is a twisted swastika, right? Of all of the things that you could pick when you want to seem less racist, you pick a goddamn swastika. Yeah, it, it looks very Nazi-y. It's absurd. Right, like you think that maybe she would have Googled it? Hey, has this name ever been used before? Googled? Is, yeah. that, is that your Texan coming out again? I think it's uh, Le Google in France. But like, I don't know, maybe phone a friend, like, Hey, has this name ever been used before? Oh, oh, it was used by Nazis? Yeah, I guess it's fine. We'll just still go with that. Right? Like, there are so many names you could have come up with. Like, the fun party. Literally anything that's not the same name as a collaborationist party. Right? Historically. So why are they so bad at this? Why are they so terrible at this? Fundamentally, what you have here is a racist party trying to outrun its racist past. And that's really hard. I mean, Marine Le Pen is the daughter of a man who is an open Holocaust denier. She fired him from the party he created and tried to say, I'm not that bad. I'm actually, we talked about this some months ago during the French election, but I'm the defender of the West against Islam. Like, I'm actually not only not a Nazi, but I'm actually going to protect Western values. But occasionally she would also slip. So near the end of the, of the election, she gave a speech where she said France was not responsible for an enormous French atrocity against its Jewish population during the Holocaust that France had long ago admitted responsibility for. So like even Marine Le Pen, who's pretty good in some ways at politics and advertising and lying, the mask slipped. And then the kind of anti-Semitism lurking right below, you saw it there too. I mean, outrunning this kind of dark past, even if you don't go as dumb as not using Le Google and finding out the name was a Nazi collaboration Le party, Google. it's still really hard to do. But honestly, like, I have a genuine question. And Zach, I know you know this really well. Did she literally just not look it up? Or is there something else going on? Like, was it meant to be sort of like a wink nod that just kind of was a little too clear? Like, what happened there? Yeah, no one is really sure. There are a few theories. First of all, there are other parties that have tried to use a similar name before. In fact, one of them claims that it holds the copyright on this name and is suing her for it. Uh, and it was sort of a more center-right-ish party, so it's possible that she was trying to co-opt their image. It translates to, like, national gathering or national rally, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's like kind that. of, like, generic. Yeah, that's, so that's like that's one of the theories, right? Is it's trying to just be generic and and hope that nobody knew this. The other one is just like the the name Front National was irreparably damaged by the election and its own history. So you just pick a different name, one that most French people honestly don't know. Then you also do it in such a way as to be, a, as one of you said, a wink, wink, nod, nod to your hardcore supporters. So it's like we're not really giving up on the racism. We're just trying to fool the rubes. And that strikes me as more plausible. Yeah. And it also speaks to the deeper point here, right? Like the Front National and the other far right parties in Europe 
as Bannon said, he was more honest than they would be about it. That is their appeal. Their appeal is being anti-immigrant and specifically anti-Muslim. It is a kind of racist, thinly veiled, but nonetheless fundamentally racist argument. And you can't have that kind of appeal and still be considered a mainstream party by anybody else. It's also interesting that it was Steve Bannon who went. I mean, Bannon always mocks globalists. He mocks cucks, to use his kind of alt-right Breitbart term that we inexplicably now use uh, on Slack in the Vox newsroom as a term of endearment. But there is kind of this interesting international network of sorts. We had Marine Le Pen's niece was invited to go speak at a conference of American conservatives just a short time ago. Bannon is now in Europe. He was both in France and also in Italy, where a far-right party did very well, actually, which we talked about on a prior episode. But to my mind, the broader context here is the fortunes of far-right parties in Europe are kind of rising, falling, rising, falling. Italy, they did well. France, they did kind of well till it got to the actual election, and then Marine Le Pen got destroyed. But you do see a kind of concerted effort that goes across borders, where parties share values, in some cases share leaders they admire, and each one tries to help the other. And I think disconcerting to me is not simply that they would try to go less Nazi, but actually go just as Nazi. It's that they have other allies in France, in the US, in Hungary, and in Poland. That wave may go up, may go down, but it's not cresting. It's not down. never go full Nazi. Uh, the term that some analysts are using for this is the nationalist international, which is it's as great. paradoxical as it sounds. But it's that there's this implicit alliance of parties that are opposed to the EU and opposed to mass immigration and skeptical of international trade. They work together towards the common goal of isolating themselves from their other neighbors. It's a very odd kind of cooperation and one that would be unstable if they all took power. But since these parties are, for the most part, Italy is an exception, quite far from power, they can ideologically cooperate without having to deal with the hard trade-offs of actually implementing a nationalist policy agenda. And in Bannon's case, he has this like crackpot visionary view of history where these parties will soon rise on the great support of the people and overthrow the globalists and introduce a new renaissance medieval type strong Europe against the Islamic hordes. Like He says things like this in his speeches. You know who also presents himself as the bulwark against the creeping Sharia, if you will, like the kind of Muslim immigration, but also like the EU and NATO. It's Vladimir Putin, not to get back to Russia too strongly here, but there is a common thread through all of these parties. And we talked about it in, like you said, our previous episode, we talked about the Italian elections. Russia and Putin specifically has made contacts with every one of these parties, has in some cases gave money to Marine Le Pen, to the Front National has intervened in elections, and they also present that narrative of, like, we are the Christian, white, kind of civilizational bulwark against these hordes of unwashed Muslim immigrants. It's like the civilizational battle. And it's just really creepy to hear all these different people, including someone who is a former senior official in the White House, making the same exact claims. We will end there. And this has been a fun week. It's been a newsy week. We had the final departure of Vox favorite and worldly favorite, Mr. Charisma Rex Tillerson. We had a special episode of Worldly that went up this week because of it. If you haven't listened to it, please do. We want to thank, as always, our producer, Jane Weinberger, our engineer, Griffin Tanner, social media manager, Julie Bogan. If you like what you heard, come tell us you liked it at worldlyatvox.com, hashtag worldlypodcast on Twitter, rate, review, subscribe. We'd like to help grow the audience. We'd like to hear from all of you. We will be with all of you next week. 